This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. So we're here at the end of the Trial Lawyers University Conference and uh, been recording all week. Robert's been out here from Law Pods producing all of our shows, flew out here with the equipment. We thank you so much for doing that. It's been great recording live and um, we just really appreciate it. No, fellas, I can't tell you what an absolute pleasure it's been to come here and do this for you. I've been work- we've been working together for a while on your show. We've had some conversations over Zoom, but this is the first time to see you both in person, and it was every bit as good as I hoped it would be. So thanks so much for letting me be involved in your podcast, and this kind of lets me live my dream too, so thanks. No, you were fantastic, and you know what? Everything is fully professional. You've been amazing to work with, and you do such a great job, so oh. in addition to being a good person, so thank you. <laughs> thanks so much. And a recovering lawyer. Yeah, I did my time. <laughs> thanks. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program. Highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Ravipudi. And I'm Ben Gideon. Live again, side by side, Ben. I'm really enjoying doing this at the PSBR Trial College together. How are you doing? I think I'm going to just move out here so we can do all of our episodes together. No more Zoom. I'm done with Zoom. <laughs> Let's do things in person. I think that's the right way to do it. And this is the right place to do it with uh, so many talented lawyers right at our fingertips. It's been great. This is a great, great conference. There's so many fantastic trial lawyers here. And the trial lawyer that we're about to interview, Dirk Vandiver from Kansas City, Missouri. I attended his voir dire session yesterday morning, and I learned so much in probably 45 minutes to an hour listening to you do voir dire. I, mean, I appreciate I, that. There might be somebody better in America at voir dire, but I, I haven't seen him. Well, we're going to have Rahul give a uh, seminar on voir dire here in just a few minutes, so... And then I'm going to face plant. So can you give me my pointers, please, right now? (laughs) I'll try. Yeah. So just before we jump into that and get into the techniques and skills, tell us a little bit about your uh, career as a trial lawyer. I mean, you've been doing this quite a while and had a lot of huge verdicts. I've read about them and know about them. But um, introduce yourself to our listeners who don't know you. Well, I will. Thank you. And I'm, and I am a huge fan of this podcast. You get some really important information out that we can all use. I was ready, willing, and able to sponge off of my father after I had graduated from the University of Missouri, Columbia, so that he would pay for every single thing that I needed to do at uh, University of Missouri, Columbia Law School. And then he got electrocuted because of a faulty product. 
And suddenly you have a mother, my mother, sainted mother, who was a double master's PhD and a lawyer, had been in school for so long that she hadn't had a chance to really make any money. So we have somebody who's not making money and three kids in school. And so I had to go around and try to get a scholarship at UMKC where I did. And then I went on to the Popham Law Firm in Kansas City, Missouri, and have been there ever since. Although I will tell you that that experience about my dad dying at a time in Missouri where the limitations on uh, wrongful death was $25,000, not non-economic, $25,000 period is still kind of a searing experience that has propelled me into doing what I'm doing. Did your father have a case that came out of that? But I guess it, he did. there's limits on the he, recovery. He, exactly. He did. And uh, my mother, I believe, got $6,250 for the death of a man who was 50 years of age at the time and himself a very successful trial lawyer with unlimited earnings potential. And that's what the value of a life was at the Unbelievable. So when did that law change in Missouri? I don't know when it changed year-wise, but it was probably 10 years or so after. In Missouri, we're still fighting uh, in medical malpractice cases with limits. Uh, if you are the victim of malpractice, there is a limit, whereas the limits don't apply in any other type of personal injury case. See, one thing I learned from Vaudeer is what you say malpractice in different ways. So you just said medical malpractice, but yes. when you do the Vaudeer, you say medical malpractice. I absolutely I, And do. I actually thought that was really interesting. Can you tell us why you do that? Absolutely. For example, what I tell people when we are talking about a serious injury that has occurred because somebody, as the grocers intended, were looking straight ahead at the product and they slip on an ultra slippery floor. So it's a dangerous floor and they hurt themselves, break a hip and forever alter their, their lives. I never refer to it as a slip and fall case, except in Vordire. In Vordire, that's absolutely what I say, because there are a number of people out there who know that we're all nothing more than a bunch of slip and fall lawyers. So I want to tap into that. And I want to tap into medical malpractice, whereas ultimately I try to say medical negligence. So it's going to be something that I'm going to try to lower the burden of somebody responding to me saying, yeah, I, I got some feelings about that. You know, I, I don't even like it when you say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, when you're, when you're phrasing it that way, are you trying to identify uh, certain jurors? Yes, I'm trying to identify people that have feelings against medical negligence cases. If you phrase it that way, if you phrased it the way we think that we should phrase it, such as ultimately in the closing argument when we say the doctor didn't follow the safety rules and didn't do his job because of that. If you said it that way, I believe you're not going to really, here's what you're going to do. You're going to submerge the people who say, you know, it would not be politically correct for me to say that I have any problems at all if there's a legitimate case, because everybody on that panel is going to say, if it's a legitimate case, I'll find for you. That's not what we're trying to find. We're trying to find people to make sure that they come out and are brutally honest. 
So then kind of walk us through a little bit of, do you have sort of a set framework or at least an initial introduction that you do to sort of set the stage in voir dire? I do. I do. And, and in fact, I taught the session yesterday and, and sent a video out, which would, which we can supply to people. But I go through the entire introduction at that point. But a few of the points that I try to make in the introduction is to say that we're going to have a two-way conversation. It's the only time you're going to be able to talk to me. And the reason we do that is that this is the most important part of the case. It's the most important part of the case because the people who ultimately sit here are going to have to make decisions based purely on the evidence of the law. Let me, let me tell you what I'm talking about. What we are not asking here is if you're fair. Every single person is fair. And after a lifetime spent in courtrooms, I can tell you everybody here comes here making sure that they're going to do the right thing. Here's what I define as fairness. What I define as fairness is telling the truth. What I define as fairness is when I hear something, I'm going to tell it like it is. I am not going to be politically correct. I'm going to say it even if I may ruffle feathers. That's what we're really trying to do here. I also, and we shared this yesterday, I view Vordire as without question the most important thing that we do. And the reason for that are a number of things. First of all, the decision makers that are on your jury, those folks, those individuals are going to make decisions based on what they already believe. We've all heard the uh, statement, you believe what you see, it's not. It's you believe what you see. And in fact, if you see something that is inconsistent with the belief that you already have, you're going to distort what you're seeing. The evidence is now going to be thrown out and you're still going to go ahead and do that. Number two, first impression. You, you see what you believe. Did I say it the wrong way? Okay. I think so. What I meant to say is, I, I, I that, that's kind what of an you important again. point. <laughs> I, I, was I just wanted to prove I was listening carefully. <laughs> well, what I mean to say is that the people are going to make decisions based on what they already believe, even before they come to court. And so the evidence that they see doesn't necessarily shape the belief that ultimately shapes their verdict. It's the other way around. They already believe something. They're going to see a piece of evidence, and they're going to distort the evidence to conform with the belief that they already had before they ever came in. The second point is about first impressions. It is the first impression. It's the first impression for two critically important things by uh, a trial lawyer. Number one, your credibility, everything. Number two, that you are actually knowledgeable to say what you're going to say. I've heard a lot of people, and frankly, my father was this way, where he would, he would go to trial with a deliberately torn lining in, the, in his jacket, so he was just like everybody else. I don't really believe that. I think that you've got to be able to be credible, but then you've got to be the coach, the knowledgeable, humane coach that is going to show them what they ought to be doing. The third thing that I say is important is that Vordire is not a separate, discrete part of the trial that you do and then forget about. In point of fact, Vordire is used, Vordire, in opening statement, in direct examination, in cross-examination, and in closing argument. It's just things that we happen. And, and I, I know, Ben, that we talked about uh, some things that you do 
with regard to safety rules. So that's an explanation. That That's one of the examples I think that you do in your Vordire to try to get safety rules out of the juror's mouth so that when they hear it in the opening statement and from your expert, when you cross-examine the defense expert about it and put it off in a closing argument, it's something they've already believed. They will see what they already believe. Uh, how did you do it before? And you, we were talking right before your malpractice session. Right. I had a several question uh, like sequence. I would start with if I wanted to do a particular safety rule, I'd say, how important is it to you that a doctor reviews the, the test results and tells you about them? And, you know, or on a scale of one to 10, how important is that to you? And somebody would, you know, generally everybody would say it's very important to them. And then I would ask them, so when doctors do testing, what's your expectation about what they're going to do? And then, well, my expectation is they're going to review the test right away and they're going to tell me the results. And so that's my rule for the case. But what you taught was, um, which I hadn't done before, but I think is way better, is to ask people what their experience is first, because I'm sort of planting the, the idea in their minds. But by asking their experience, I think it comes organically. But do you want to run through how you do that? Absolutely. And I think you've touched upon something extraordinarily important, which is judges get very, very antsy if it appears like you're trying to condition the jury. Judges relax when you're talking about life experiences and their beliefs and expectations based on their life experiences. And so one of the things that I try to do, I don't know that I did it yesterday, is to say, how many people here have heard uh, the saying that we are all a product of our own experiences? Everybody. Has anybody not heard that saying? No, everybody. Well, let me ask you, what does that mean to you? Well, that means that that's a part of me. Does that mean that that forms your beliefs, your values? Does that mean that your life experiences have basically meant that's who you are? Those are your principles, and you use those principles to make decisions, even important decisions, and we have that type of thing. And then I go into the first thing, which is I want to talk about some life experiences. Let's talk about an experience whereby you, or if you think it's a fairly narrow one, you or a dear loved one has ever had to take a test, a laboratory test, before you were allowed to take a medicine or undergo a treatment. Seems like a fair number of you have. And then I go to that individual. And then I ask more of a, uh, of a question, which is, what is your expectation about whether or not the test that was administered before the treatment would be looked at before the treatment? Well, yeah, <laughs> obviously. Now, the number three question is the question I try not to ask overtly, which is, what can happen if your expectations have been violated? That's really what I want them to tell me. But they will tell me this 95% of the time, even without me asking that exact question in that exact way. So tell me about that. Well, of course, they're going to look at it. Why? Why do you, why do you say that? Well, I mean, if you're saying I'd have a test before I, it's safe for me to take a medication, 
well, if they didn't look at the test before I took the medication, I might take a medication that was unsafe that they knew shouldn't have been given to me. How important is that to you? <laughs> it's critical. You heard yesterday. We did the same thing. And they said, it's imperative. It's, it's going to be a bad day if we do not have somebody that actually looks at the test that they were administered before I was supposed to take a medication. Then I add a fourth part, which I still think, at least I argue, would be a life experience, which is, do you think there's a system? Did you think there was a system to make sure that somebody would look at the test before they would actually get the medicine? Well, of course. And here is the interesting thing. If you do that and you probe like that, somebody is going to say, that's only common sense. You have just had the juror give you on a silver platter, somebody could die, it would be a bad day, and it's only common sense. Because we can't really win the battle, I don't think, of experts all that often. But we can say, you know, they have great experts. We have great experts. Here's something, though, that you should think of. Those experts that the defendants paid for and we paid for, they're not going to be here at the end of this case. They're not going to make the decision you are. And you have something that goes into this that is crucially important, and that is common sense. So let's talk about the common sense view of the evidence that leads you, just like I heard you uh, say this morning in your malpractice uh, breakout session that compels you to say they should have done that, they didn't, and that's what caused the problem. So then with some of those questions, how do you, you know, you talked about life experience and premises, it being premised in that. Do you sometimes get objections to some of these questions? And then how do you deal with it? I got objections when I didn't talk about life experiences. When I've talked about life experiences, they've still objected because they know what I'm trying to do. Judge, one of the things that, in fact, I'll say it up front, there are two main things I'm going to be asking you. One, your life experience. Two, your beliefs and your expectations based on those life experiences. And when I say, what's your life experience about? And they say objection, and then they come up conditioning. Judge, I'm asking about their life experiences. And in point of fact, they ought to want to know whether or not somebody has had a life experience that's been similar to this, I'm allowed to ask about things such as similar injuries. I'm talking about life experiences that is absolutely core and part of any type of voir dire examination. And then you talked about how some of your voir dire then transcends into opening statement, yes. examination of witnesses and closing yes. arguments. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so let's take what we're just talking about there. I just had a juror tell me that a common sense rule is that if I'm given a test to see whether it's safe to have a medication, you got to look at the test. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to have Dr. Jones, and he is well qualified, and he's done 10,000 of these, and he is the one that actually oversees giving cisplatinum, which is a very toxic type of medication. He's going to explain to you the reason why it's so critically important to make sure that you have a lab test to see that it is, is important. And what he's going to tell you is they violated safety rule number one because they didn't look at a test that they had the patient take to see if it was safe before they gave the medicine. 
And guess what? In this case, it was not safe for them to get the medicine. Which is the, the same rule that they, the jury said was the common sense thing that uh, came out of Wadir. Exactly. So you're just basically mimicking their own view back to them exactly. as, as the rule in the case, which is... And then obviously in direct examination, I'm asking him, better clue him in, but asking him, he'll say it, these people already think it's a common sense rule. And then I will cross-examination. Of course, a lot of cross-examination is you stating what your position is, regardless of what they say. So in other words, as I understand it, or, or I, I want to make sure I do understand it, do you believe that it's acceptable in a case where somebody is given a toxic medicine and required to have a lab test, it's okay not to take a look at the lab test before you give the toxic medicine. I don't really care what they say. I mean, I assume they're going to be red-faced and stammer. And, and even if they're so slick that they don't, people are going to say, that doesn't make common sense at all. And then in closing argument, let me get to a different thing. One of the things that I also do, frankly, the safety rules are kind of at the end. I go to the type of case it is. Uh, I go to the elements of damage, which are most important to me, which is either human damages or a big damage amount, and then number three, burden of proof. So let me give you an example with regard to how I use Vordire in closing argument, and I'll pick the, the elements of damage. You know, folks, this is a personal injury case, and in a personal injury case, the job of a juror that's ultimately going to sit in on this case is to assign a dollar value to every element of damage that you say was caused or contributed to by the defendant. In fact, I expect that at the end of this case, if you find that the doctor didn't follow the rule or that the grocer did not clean up the way they did or that the manufacturer didn't warn about some particular damage, if you believe that they have not done their job, then what I, uh, then what I anticipate you will see is the judge will instruct you that you must, not may, not could, not that it would be nice, you must compensate. In other words, you must assign a dollar number to every single element of damage caused or contributed to cause. Now, there are hundreds of types of damages. Let me take one, and this is this is probably common sense to you, but I call these bookkeeping type of damages. This is the type of damage such as paychecks or medical bills where somebody has already figured the number out. I mean, they're not, not even asking you for that. If you find that there was negligence and it contributed to the medical bill, basically your job is to make sure that we do the math right. That's it. That's all you're doing. And, and that's one part of this case, or in most of the cases I have, I, it's not a part of the case. We're not even going to ask for any of that. We're not going to ask for a dime of any of that. What we're talking about here are the human damages. And I know that a lot of people have some very, very strong feelings about human damages. And there are many, many, many buckets, many, many different types of elements. For example, and then I will always start out with the one that I think is going to get the biggest rise, which is physical pain. I think that's what you do in California. That's one of the seven elements. 
I'm talking about money for physical pain. You assess physical pain and you give money for that. Am I clear on this? Am I making myself clear? And I know a lot of people, if I haven't used my brother already, I might use my mom, and all of this is actually true, who would say that she's now dead, but who would say something to the effect, money for pain. First of all, I got to tell you, that kind of taps into a feeling that I have, a little bit of distrust. If you're talking about you're going to have to assess a dollar amount for physical pain, I got to tell you, I think there's some exaggerating going on. And I don't even literally mean that they are consciously exaggerating. I'm talking about, I think that that subconsciously, they know that the more pain they express, the more money they could possibly get. How could a human being not exaggerate a little bit? And even, even if you didn't think that they were exaggerating, even if you said absolutely everything that they said is true, okay, they're in terrible pain before, now they're in terrible fame, and they got a bunch of money. What good does that do? And I know a lot of people feel that way. Talk to me about that. And I'll get a lot of people talking to me about that. Would it be fair to say that since one of the critical elements in this particular case that this particular jury is going to have to decide is a dollar number on pain, and that what we're saying in this case is that the pain is very severe and therefore requires a great deal of money, that that's going to be a, a, a problem for you. You're going to struggle with it. You're going to start out with a strike against. We may be a half a step. If it was a marathon, we'd be a half a step behind in terms of the starting gate. Yes, that would. Then what I do, and I don't think I talked about this yesterday, and I think this is critically important. It was, a, it was, a, it was an omission on my part. Think about the challenge word that you have in Maine or California or Missouri. In Missouri, it's unequivocal. And so instead of me saying, are you unequivocal about that? Because that sounds pretty strong. So what I do is I just get the Merriam-Webster dictionary out and I see that what unequivocal means is it's decided. It's not really in question. It's, it's basically what I've already thought. And no amount of other people saying you shouldn't think that way is going to make you change your entire belief system. Well, that's right. So uh, in the words of, uh, of, the, of maybe the law, you're unequivocal in that regard. After I've gotten them to commit to all of those things, yes. And then I go down and start, who else feels that way to any extent? They'll go ahead, we'll have our conversation, say a little bit more. It sounds to me like Mr. Jones, you're also, you basically made up your mind. This is, this is really not the case for you. You're at the end of the case and you say, I think this, is, this guy really had severe pain. But I tell you, this is not something I'm comfortable with, writing down a big amount of money for physical pain. Then I go through and I talk about how physical pain is different than mental anguish and how mental anguish is different than, and this is where I'll go into the example going into closing argument, that is different than our in alienable right, really unalienable, but unalienable right to pursue happiness the way we choose. You see, nobody has the right to tell us how we pursue happiness. 
So everybody understand that everybody can have different ways to pursue happiness on their terms. Some people might like golf. Other people might like hunting. Some people might like chess. Other people may like playing the piano. You ask me, for example, first of all, if it's on the job, I like this. I love being in front of people somewhat like the founding fathers did in terms of a village meeting. I really enjoy that. But if you're talking about something outside the job, the thing that I love more than anything else is being with my kids and climbing up and getting sweaty and slipping and sliding down a really hard hike. And that is important. And I know other people who I think are very similar to me who would say, I would pay you not to have to go up some very hard hike. And yet that's really important to me. Does everybody understand they have to use the evidence and their common sense about what that meant to that individual. Now, at that point, I stopped, although I may not have in some prior court hours. And then in the closing argument, I, I tap back into that. You remember when we were talking about all the various different things that, are, that give joy and we pursue happiness on different types of, of ways and whether that's important and in Vordire, I will also say uh, all men are created equal. Anybody here feel, anybody heard that? Yes. What's that mean to you? Does anybody here feel that the rich and the famous experience pain differently than somebody who's not rich and famous? Does somebody feel that uh, a pursuit of happiness by somebody who's rich and famous is more valuable than somebody who is not rich and famous? And then I go to the closing argument, and in the closing argument, I have a slide, uh, and the slide has a teeter-totter, and on one side, it has Jeff Bezos with a little rocket ship. And then on the other side, there's a picture of a mom uh, with a kid sitting by that person. I say, remember that we talked about uh, all men are created equal. Is it really fair to say that uh, a, a homemaker in mid-Missouri who doesn't make a dime for all the efforts that she has. Is it really fair to say that her pursuit of happiness is worth, worth the same as somebody who's got $161 billion in the bank, who makes hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars every year? Let's assume that we have somebody that has a badly broken leg. I mean, really shattered. And it's Jeff Bezos. Now, the shattered leg for Jeff Bezos didn't cost him a nickel in terms of earnings. His earnings are just the same. So it's not paycheck. Uh, it does not cost him a single dime out of his bank account. He's still got the $161 billion. But it does mean that his doctor comes to him and says, you failed the flight physical and now you can't go up in the jet. You can't go into space. Is that valuable? People would say, yeah, that's him. That, that's, that's a part of what makes him him. That's worth $50 million. And I say to you, or I ask you, and I pose this question, why is Jeff Bezos's thought to go into space any more valuable than a homemaker in mid-Missouri who is no longer able to hold her child no longer able to get on the ground and play, no longer able to hold her up and whirl her around. That's an example of taking Vordire and putting it into closing. 
We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. Yeah, one thing I really liked about your presentation yesterday was when you were talking about the bookkeeping damages. And of course, nobody ever has a problem allowing money for lost wages and medical bills. And they're very magnanimous about giving things that are obviously deserved, right? And so you asked that. And then, but I thought the next question that you had now in New England, we might want to invoke Tom Brady, maybe, or um, right. Mac Jones, our Mac new quarterback. Jones. I don't think you'd but want to do that. We probably don't want to do Tom Brady now, although <laughs> maybe. It, well, you're exactly but, right. But, but I thought that was a really great question because it really calls out sort of the, the lie or, no, or truth yes. of that, how much they really uh, believe that they would be willing to give, you know, that even the bookkeeping damages and you probably identify some people right there, right? That, so tell us how Absolutely. that works, that, yeah. that question. Absolutely. It could be adapted. We have listeners all over the country. Of course, you can insert the high-earning uh, mega star of your choice, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and the way I do this is to make sure that I'm talking about a loss to a well-known person that doesn't cause a loss because of a physical inability to perform. This is because, and I think or, that's- Or to a physical object, right? Which I kind of like that too, because right. you, you're contrasting the human damages to just, so tell us how that works. Can you just right. give us this? How many people here would have any problem in terms of the bookkeeping, the pocketbook, the, the stuff that's already been calculated? Anybody have a problem with that? One way that I used to do it before, I, I, and I'll go ahead and, and do the way we're, we were talking about is, Let's say that somebody goes into a bank and borrows $25 million for a startup, and they just don't pay it. They're not paying it. And the bank, a big multi-billion dollar corporation, is suing an individual for $25 million. Anybody here going to say, I'm not going to do that? Anybody say that? No, nobody? Let, let me ask you. You didn't raise your hand. Why, why is it that you would not have a problem in giving a bank $25 million from an individual because he paid. He said that he was going to pay it. He owes it. It's a debt that he owes. The other That's the way I used to do it. And well, I why did you move away from that? That's pretty good, too. I like it. I like it. Yeah. But the reason I like it, the reason I like this other is that it is so recognizable. I do think that borrowing $25 million, even to a, a fairly small town, for a startup doesn't sound shocking, but this doesn't sound shocking because the press has inundated us with, with comments about Patrick Mahomes. So I say, anybody here ever hear, heard about this uh, contract that a fellow by the name of Patrick Mahomes has signed? Yeah. Oh yeah, a few people have. All right, well you heard. In and Kansas in fact, City, a few in, people yeah, have. In Kansas City, a few people <laughs> have. And what's interesting also about that bet is, remember two years ago, people said a half a billion dollars? And now in 2022, they're saying the Chiefs got a bargain. <laughs> a guy, he's got, they got a bargain for $45 million or $50 million a year. Let's say this, hypothetically, and obviously this has nothing to do with the case that we're talking about here. But let's say that an accountant absolutely did not do their job right. 
It didn't cause a physical injury to Patrick Mahomes. Didn't mean that he couldn't pursue his joys of life. Didn't mean he couldn't play football. Didn't mean any of that. But it did mean that because he forfeited, he didn't get in papers on time, he forfeits 45 million bucks. Anybody here have a problem with Patrick Mahomes bringing a suit and saying, I want the $45 million back that you cost me by not getting the papers in on time? No. Why not? The reason that I'm asking about that is the large amount of money, because always, no matter what I do, whether it's burden of proof, whether it's the type of cases, whether it's the type of elements of damage, I always get back to the amount of money that I'm going to be talking about. So I want to talk about large amounts of money they have no problems with when it's a bookkeeping type of number. When it's a number that all you have to do is get a $1.49 calculator from Target, boom, we're done, that's it. I don't have any consternation whatsoever for that. Burden of proof. Let me let me real quickly do a burden of proof, and then we're probably running up up on the edge of this. But the burden of proof, uh, let's say, I say the burden of proof, there are different types of burdens of proof for different types of cases. And by the way, I used to also do it the way uh, I think David Ball did, which is essentially all we have to do is this little bitty, just barely anything, and we're going to get millions of dollars. Well, you heard yesterday what a lot of people are saying now. Sounds like you got kind of a weak case. Sounds like you're not very confident about the type of evidence that you're going to have. So I've shifted a little bit, and now it's more toward Keith Mitnick, and most of this is borrowed from him. But saying something like, let's assume that this was a criminal case, and let's assume that you're on a jury, and let's assume that you're using your life experiences and your expectations and your common sense to make decisions just the way you do everything, the way you did when you decided what school to go to, who to marry, what job to take, important decisions. How do you make those decisions? Look at the evidence, you balance it, and you say, you know what, probability are this is the best way to go. So I think based on all of that evidence, this guy killed him. But that criminal defense lawyer looking at the civil defense or the civil lawyer, that criminal defense lawyer was really slick. I mean, really clever. He threw everything up in the world. He threw everything up to see if anything was stick. And if you were basing your decision based on the way you really make decisions in real life, you would say he committed murder and he goes to jail for murder or is executed for murder. But the law says I've got to do this beyond a reasonable doubt. That means in a criminal case, a doubt creates an out completely. And so if you were true to your oath and you looked at all the evidence and you said he did kill him, but that defense lawyer, you know, on this one point, it's a small doubt, but it's a reasonable one. And so I got to tell you, I got to watch this guy walk out of the courtroom with no responsibility of any kind, even though I believe I'm pretty certain he killed him. Well, that's not the case. Here we use something more common sense. Here we're doing more likely true than not using David Ball's hands. And most people have uh, agree with that. I now want to get them to say, I agree with that. Anybody have a problem with that? No, no, that sounds right. Is that the way you make decisions? Yes. Even important decisions? Yes. And everybody says that except when it comes to the amount of money. 
when it comes to the amount of money, it makes a difference. Because you see, folks, sometimes in cases where a person loses a leg or has their spine shattered or whatever the injury is that we're talking about, sometimes when people have that type of injury, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars for the human damages. Then people have a problem. Then people say, whoa, 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 hold the boat here. And, and I know many people feel that way. Maybe most people feel that way. That's probably one of the reasons that we have 80 people seated here and talking to us. And there's only 12 that are going to actually be seated because many, if not most people, are going to have some beliefs that would make this not the right case for them. I got a brother. He's a CFO, chief financial officer in San Antonio. And he makes on a daily basis decisions, transactions. And he says, 25 million here, 50 here, 75 million here. And he does that based on the way we always do things. More likely true than not, based on all the evidence, common sense. How do we weigh probabilities? And that's the way that he does it. But if we go over to something else, such as personal injury, such as a shattered spine, such as a lost leg, he says, whoa, 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 hold, hold this up. Now, I, I'm going to need more than just more likely true than not for millions of dollars for human damages, damages that aren't even calculated. Now, I'm going to need far more. In fact, I'm going to need probably closer to that more likely, not just more likely true than not. I'm going to need more than like beyond a reasonable doubt with my hands going up in the air. And so in that fashion, I always try to tap into the fact there are different standards. You would require the burden of proof to go up as the money goes up. And that isn't the law. So you, you give that background or do you are you and do you ask them, you know, who here would feels even a little bit that way that they would need a higher burden yes. before they considered yeah, millions. Or how do you? How would you typically ask that? The key word that I just said there that I did not emphasize at all was Bob says it's my own brother. I hardly am going to be irritated. Is he really a CFO? He really is a CFO. He's really a CFO. He's really in San Antonio. He really does make $25 million. Now, what if you don't have? I was thinking about how to do pull this off myself, of course, but. I don't have a brother who's a CFO at a company in Texas and trades $75 million in a press oh, of a button. So okay. what do we do now? Uh, under those circumstances, you go to the news and oh. you talk about decisions that are made. I mean, heavens, you, you go to, how about Tom Brady? The, whoever the GM was has to, has to make a decision based on all the evidence. It's not perfect here. But based on all the evidence, not beyond a reasonable doubt, it's just based on all of the evidence, I'm going to give him $50 million contract. I'm right. going to give him this. I'm going to give him that. And right. people, I mean, you give Mahomes half a billion dollars and he could get injured tomorrow, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. You can't put this beyond a reasonable doubt. You can't. It's not. A doubt in a civil case doesn't create an out. So absolutely. And the word that I use that is the key to all of this is need, need. When Bob looks at this and he said, you're going to ask for millions of dollars. And of course, the more times that I can say millions of dollars and not offend somebody, 
the more that it's not going to be sticker shock at the end. Because I have seen a lot of people not say a word about a lot of money. And at the end, people's eyeballs just pop out and say, you've got to be kidding me. Well, we've been talking about millions all along. You're talking about millions of dollars. I'm going to need more than the preponderance, more than more likely true than not, more than more likely right than wrong. Whatever your decision is, I'm going to need more than that. You're going to need it? Yeah, I'm going to need more than that. I'm going to need probably closer to, higher than, closer to beyond a reasonable doubt. I was trying a case six months ago, and I was doing that. And all of the people, yep, I'm going to need that too. I'm going to need more than just more likely true than not. I'm going to need that. And I stopped there and I got them. So honestly, I mean, in light of your feelings, you're going to need more than the standard. This probably isn't the case for you if you learn that that's the standard. And even the judge says it. So then the judge, after about five people who disqualified themselves, I swear to you, they were off. He pipes in. I love this judge. Love this judge. He says, wait a minute. Are you telling me that if I instruct you that the burden of proof is more likely true than not, you're going to ignore me? <laughs> I thought, oh, so now I've done a couple of things different. Now I, I do, A, I'm going to need more than that. B, it's definitely more than uh, more likely than not. It's probably higher. It's probably something closer to. And then I'm, I'm also going to say something along these lines. And this isn't quite as perfected, but we've all talked about our human experiences or life experiences and that life experiences uh, create who we are. I mean, that's who we are. That's how we make decisions. It's part of us. It's the format of our principles in life that tells us how we're going to make decisions. So if we have that, we have that there and something conflicts with that. And somebody says, you believe, I, I mean, on the basis of what you've said, as I understand it, you would say you need pretty close, that's one thing, pretty close to beyond a reasonable doubt, well, certainly more than just more likely to, yeah, yeah, that's true. And you feel certain about that. Yeah. And you're not going to change your mind in the course of four days of trial, are you? No. Here's the thing that I'm playing with, and I think I've heard somebody else say this, but here's the thing that I'm playing with that I, I think might be something that is worthwhile to consider, and that is, that's your life. You're doing what you believe is true by your principles, yes. And you seem to me like a person that's not wishy-washy, yes. And so if a defense lawyer stands up and says, well, if the burden of proof was really more likely true, not you're going to ignore that and you're going to go ahead and follow the law no matter what. Nah, I'm not going to do that. What if the judge, somebody had a robes on and said, same thing. I'm going to tell you that it's more likely true than not. Are you going to go with what somebody says or are you going to say, I'm going to go with my beliefs? That needs a little bit more honing, but I, I want to get there and I'm convinced that we can get there. We can get to something where we basically say, you're going to go with your belief system rather than a stranger in robes telling you, you got to do something that is against the what you already believe. Right. Which, I mean, everybody knows except for 
the fiction of the judge rehabilitation that that is 100% correct. In fact, I don't know. There's a there's a scholarly paper. I just filed a motion seeking voir dire in a case in upcoming trial and appended this as a exhibit. But there's now a scholarly paper on uh, testing the effectiveness of judicial rehab in changing causing jurors to follow the rules of the law as opposed to following their own beliefs. And it demonstrates two things. One, that it makes no difference. It doesn't cause them to abandon their own beliefs. But number two, it makes them feel more confident that they can be fair, even though they will stick to their pre-existing beliefs. So it's so, worse. So it actually makes it worse. It does. Because it, it helps to obscure perhaps their subconscious or you know, latent bias and feel good about um, ignoring the rules better than they did before the judicial rehab. So I think it's a useful paper and uh, it's out there. Is that there. John Campbell? John Campbell, yeah. If you Google John Campbell and judicial rehab or jury selection, you can find the paper. It's being published in a major peer-reviewed journal, though. That's and great. Uh, uh, and it's he he's one of the authors, but the other authors are all academics that uh, do this kind of stuff for a living. So it's one of the things uh, is the point we talked about before, which is the definition of in most states, there is law that will tell you under what circumstances you cannot create you cannot rehab. And generally, that is, if a person, if a juror, a potential juror has expressed unequivocally that they have a leaning against the plaintiff, you can't rehabilitate, which is the reason I use all of the... At least it's a low bar. Yes. Unequivocally. <laughs> yeah. Well... And and I I think it's a, a lower bar than than you might think. It's just you're clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you've made that decision on the basis of forty years of life experiences. I mean, you've decided you've met, and I understand you you have never in your life had to specifically deal with the question of would you write down millions of dollars on a, on a line. I understand that, but your question and your and your answer rather as to the fact that that would get you. Maybe a little bit behind if that's the task that's really being assigned me. That's set. It's unequivocal. And once they say unequivocal and you go up to the court and say, Judge, this says you cannot even attempt to rehabilitate if it's an unequivocal bias. Yeah, that's that's good. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense to at least see if they'll go there. Exactly. Uh, Doesn't hurt. Yeah. Well, uh, Dirk, we, I really appreciate your taking time to talk to me and to Raul on our podcast here. It's so great to meet you. I really learned a lot from you and um, look forward to staying in touch over the years. Absolutely. Me too, Raul and Ben. Thanks, man. Thank you. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.